If you will join us by standing for the word, uh, reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 11. I'm Mary Lou Gertner, and I'm going to lead us in the reading of God's word. Therefore, remember that at one time, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Just a few things I want to talk about before we hop into the sermon this morning. We will, we will be there in Ephesians chapter 2 if you have your Bibles and want to turn there. Um, but just a, one's a quick announcement. One is a thank you, and I can't remember what the third one is, but I'll remember it by the time I get there. Um, the first one, if you know Joanne Finley, and if you've been here a while, you remember Joanne, who's a friend of ours and was part of this congregation for decades. Uh, Joanne is going to be turning 90 years old next Saturday. So there's actually an invitation here, which you probably can't read it, but there are some on the, on the shelf back there in the lobby. Um, next Saturday, they're having a celebration for her in Grants Pass. But if you don't want to go to Grants Pass, or you can't go, uh, you can send cards, and I would just love to just inundate Joanne with cards celebrating her 90th birthday, and there's information on how to do that back there. If you don't know Joanne, you could still send her a card, or you could ignore this announcement. Um, 
The second thing I want to say is gratitude. Um, I got to, last week on New Year's Eve, I got to sit back there about where Pepper and Deanna are sitting and just watch the whole service unfold with our young people. And so I have a really grateful full heart of, that all these young people would come and be here and participate and do an excellent job, by the way. Good job, all of you that were part of that. Um, yeah. And also, I feel, I just want to express to you as a church that I feel blessed and proud to be part of a fellowship that can welcome and embrace and celebrate that, right? They can celebrate our young people and, and really celebrate what God is doing amongst them and, and look at them and go like, hey, you guys are next. You're the next ones. We're handing the baton off to you. And so that filled me with a lot of joy last week. And then the third thing is I want to encourage you to continue praying for the Prairie, uh, Prairie City Baptist Church. Uh, they are, I believe, uh, voting to affirm or call a pastor today who's come and candidated for them. And if all goes well, he'll be coming out soon. So we've been, over the last few months, uh, sending somebody out there about once a month to help just fill their pulpit and serve their body and uh, give some assistance to their elders. So um, we'll see how that goes. But next week, DJ Kerr is still planning, yeah, okay, <laughs> is planning to go out uh, to preach for them and fill the pulpit next week. So if you want to go out and support DJ with them next Sunday morning, I think they start at 9.30 or 10, um, go out to Prairie City, enjoy, and, and uh, encourage them, and then we'll see going forward, we'll let you know kind of how that goes. But continue praying for them, that's really the call there. Well, Happy New Year. Are we excited about 2024? Yeah, we made it. Um, as, and I, as I have done for the last six, and this will be the seventh January that I've been the lead pastor here, what I've done is taken us every January over the course of about four weeks to remind us of who we are and why we're here. So I usually do a series on the church in January, and that's what we're going to be spending the next four weeks doing is talking about what it means to be the church, uh, to be reminded about what it means to be the church, to be reminded about our identity. And the reason I want to do that is because we tend to be forgetful, right? We tend to be forgetful people. Has anybody ever had their identity stolen? Well, thank the Lord. Now, 100 years ago, you asked that question and you'd be like, what are you even talking about? How can you steal somebody's identity from them without killing them or something like that? But now all you need is social security numbers, bank account numbers, pins, those kind of things. You can steal somebody's identity, and if it has ever happened to you, you know that it's painful, and you know that it's costly. But when we as Christians actually forget who we are, it's kind of like answering the phone when the scammer calls and say, hey, here's my social security number, here's my bank account numbers, here's all my pins, you can have them. It's like handing over to the scammer the things that they are wanting to steal from you. And we know from the scriptural story that there is a scammer. There is an evil one. There is a deceiver who wants to take our identity from us. And knowing and remembering who we are is essential to being God's people when we know who we are, no one can take that away from us. So I invite you to come along over these next four Sundays and to remember with me who we are. And that's really exactly what our text this morning in Ephesians chapter 2 does by telling us the very first two words in Ephesians 2.11, therefore, remember. 
Now, when you come across that conjunction, the word therefore in the Bible, what are you supposed to do? Everybody knows. Ask what it's there for, right? You should always, it should always remind you to look at what came before, which in this case will point us back to the first part of Ephesians chapter 2, which most of you probably have some of that memorized, right? For it is by grace we have been saved through faith, right? Not of ourselves, um, etc., etc. And if we're familiar with that passage, we know that it is a rehearsal of the gospel. It's a reminder to us of what God has done for us in Jesus. So I'm going to summarize these verses, which remind us, first of all, that we're dead in our sins, verse 1, that we're servants of the devil, that we used to be disobedient in verse 2, and then children of wrath in verse 3. However, instead of destroying us, God has done the unexpected. He's done the miraculous. And in his great mercy and love for us, which you see in verse 4, when we couldn't do anything for ourselves in verse 5 because we're dead, he freely saved us by his grace. Verses 5 and 8. In doing that, he gave us a completely new identity, verse 10, where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And he's given us a new position in the universe. He's placed us in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. Now, I think it would do us good to read those verses probably every morning because what they do is they help us to rehearse the gospel. And a good friend of mine who's a pastor out in Minneapolis, I got to spend a week with him during my sabbatical this past summer, he uses that phrase often, that phrase, rehearsing the gospel. And the, the picture that comes into my mind when he says that is of an actor, right? An actor who's trying to memorize their lines and to become a character. So they go over their lines over and over and over again, speaking them, thinking them, probably even when they're sleeping, they're dreaming them, acting them out until they become really part of them. And that's what rehearsing the gospel is. It's like a musician who is practicing a song and wants to know it so well that they can play or sing it without even thinking about it. It's what it means to rehearse the gospel, that we would speak to ourselves and preach to ourselves and read the gospel as much as we can so that it becomes part of who we are. It's necessary, a daily reminder of our miraculous, God's miraculous rescue project to bring us from death to life, being reminded of that daily. And we can do this by doing what? By just opening up God's word every day, being in the Bible, memorizing scripture. Like Rob came up here and just spoke scripture from his heart and from his head. Reading solid Christian books, listening to sermons, participating in the Lord's Supper, which we'll do a little bit later. These are all ways that we can rehearse the gospel to remember who we are. Because when we neglect the gospel, we forget. We forget who we were and we forget who we are. And the first thing that we were that Paul tells us here in Ephesians 2.11 is that we were outsiders. So he reminds us again here of what we used to be. Therefore, remember... That at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, you may remember the novel, and if you're around in the late 60s, this novel came out in the late 60s. It was a young adult novel, but when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, most students in the middle school or high school had to read this book uh, at some point. And Mrs. Bobby, you can tell me if they still read it or not in school. What, what am I talking about? The Outsiders. You guys know this one, The Outsiders? 
And we usually had to watch the movie too. By, and talk about like a star-studded cast right there, by the way. Crazy. Um, this is a story about two rival groups, right? The greasers, that's what these guys were, the, the greasers, and the socias or the socialites, right? It was a cool kind of uh, rich kids. They, they were from very different socioeconomic classes. They looked different, they dressed differently, they talked differently, and they hated each other. And their animosity often turned to violence, fighting or rumbles, and even, at one point, I don't want to give the book away, but even murder. And this enmity and hostility between a group of insiders and a group of outsiders is exactly what Ephesians 2 is talking about. But instead of the socias, instead of the insiders, we have these insiders, we have the Jews who call themselves here the circumcision. And instead of the greasers or the outsiders, we have everyone else who's not a Jew or a, that is a Gentile, which is most, if not all of us, called the uncircumcision. Okay, so the outsiders here in Ephesians 2 are outsiders for a reason. They lack the privilege of being God's chosen people. And because of that, they lack all the blessings that come with being part of God's people. So verse 12, remember, again, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth or the citizenship of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise. And, and these are some pretty strong words that describe the plight of those who are outsiders. We're separated, we're alienated, and we're strangers. Can you think of, of any worse situation? The picture we should have in our minds is really of an insurmountable distance between the outsider and the insider. Apart from Christ, we are separated from everything that matters. We're on the other side of the fence. We are on the wrong side of the tracks. We're unchosen. We're unspecial. We're far off from God, far off from his people, far off from his blessings. But being distant and outside is not the only problem. Our wretchedness, if you continue reading verse 12, our wretchedness actually leaves us having no hope and without God in the world. Hopelessness is one of the most miserable things in the world. I would argue that hopelessness is a modern-day epidemic. You can see it in our suicide rates. You can see it in our, our culture's uh, depression rates. And hopelessness can be caused by not being able to picture a better future. Right? But it's often boiled down, not just to that, but it's boiled down to an inner sense of despair. But I would argue that hopelessness, as Paul uses it here, is not necessarily just a feeling. It's more than a feeling. It's actually an objective reality. For he's saying that everyone who is far from God is hopeless, whether they feel it or not. They are without hope because they were out without God in the world. Because if God is real, what kind of life or hope can there be without him? And I ask that as a serious question because I think there are all sorts of people who would say they have hope but who live without God. The Greek word here in verse 12 that is translated as without God is actually the word that we get the word atheist from. And an atheist is someone who lacks belief in any God. 
And I think you probably know atheists that are maybe close to you or you work with, maybe they're in your family, people who would say, no, I don't believe in God at all. You know many that would claim, though, even though they say that, to, to live hopeful lives, to say they have meaning and purpose and happiness. But what Paul is saying that as outsiders, as Gentiles, as those apart from the people of God, we are all atheists. We were all one, one day without God. And no matter how one feels, apart from God, there is no hope. Now, the vast majority of us in this room, I think, would never call ourselves atheists. But aren't there times when we live like atheists? Even those of, us, those of us who claim to be Christians. And we might call this functional atheism. And what I mean by that is, is we live our lives, we make our decisions, we spend our money, we do the things we do, and we live our lives without any reference to the Creator, like God is irrelevant to all those things. And when our so-called faith has absolutely no real-world impact on our lives, that's functional atheism. And my point is... is that to remember our plight as outsiders, to, to remember what it means or feels like to be far from God, then some of us actually need to wake up to the fact that we are this very moment living either consciously or subconsciously, unconsciously, apart from God. That we're still living as outsiders and we don't even realize it. And my hope is that that would be a wake-up call to us today. But the story, thankfully, doesn't end there, because in Christ, we're told, we're brought near. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And just sit with that sentence for a minute. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Because if you've truly been grabbed, and, and when I say grabbed, I mean grabbed, like grabbed. If you've truly been grabbed by the grace of God in the gospel, if you've been, been captured by his mercy, and if you've truly remembered where you were before, when you were an outsider, when you were a stranger, when you were hopeless, when you were orphaned, remember that that was then. But this verse is now, you once were far off, but now you've been brought near. The, the gap has been bridged. The distance has been eliminated. The separation, the alienation, the strangerliness, these are all things of the past. These are some of the most miraculous words in the Bible. But now, not anymore, now. And do you see what's happened in this verse? Our, our position has changed. And because our position has changed, it changes everything. We're now in Christ, which means that we are eternally attached to Jesus through faith in the power of his shed blood on the cross, which paid for our sins and purchased forgiveness for us. And through faith, we're attached to him, and we are now in him. And because we're in Christ, we are where he is. So if you look back up at verse... Um, was it verse 6? It says, we've been raised up with him and seated us. God has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are where Jesus is. 
And this positional idea is crucial. You guys remember Sesame Street? Anybody? Grover? Far! Near! You remember that one? That's how we learned far and near. That was Grover. That's the idea here, that we used to be far, now we've been brought near. Before, we were at an unimaginable distance from God. We were at an unimaginable distance from His chosen people. But through His sacrificial death, Jesus has bridged the gap, He's attached us to Himself, and He's brought us near. In other words, we don't get near to God without Jesus. We don't get near to God without Jesus. And it's because of our attachment, because of that we're in Christ, that we can now be close to the Father, and we're only close to the Father because Jesus is close to the Father. So once hopeless outsiders, once far away from him, now we are, I love this, we're the ultimate insiders. We're totally inside. But there's something more here that, that we often miss when we speak about the gospel, and it starts in verse 14, where he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. And the picture that's painted in these verses, again, is, is, a, is a picture of hostility and warfare, right? The, the greasers and the socias between two disparate groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, the insiders and the outsiders, This is a hostility that began all the way back in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain murdered his brother Abel. And it's a story that continues in the present through human wars, through every relational conflict. Human history has been marked by hostility, by warfare, and by violence. And on the cross, it says Jesus killed. Don't, Don't miss the irony here. In being killed, Jesus killed hostility. In allowing himself to be murdered, he actually killed the divisions among us, the hostility that's among us. He's broken down the walls, it says. The wall of hostility, the dividing wall there in verse 14, that divides us from one another. People who have no business being in a relationship with one another and loving one another or being together are brought together in Jesus. So verse 15, that he might create, it says, in himself, one new man, one new person, one new humanity in place of the two. And this is, this is beautiful. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible because of this. It's beautiful reality. But it's not an easy one. Because we are prone to prefer people who are like us, right? People who look like us, people who act like us like us, people who talk like us, dress like us, vote like us, smell like us. We like people who are the same age as us, speak the same language, watch the same movies. But in Christ, it's a completely different story. When he brings us near to God, Jesus also brings us near to who? Each other. 
and he might reconcile, verse 16, us both to God. He reconciles us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And because we're connected to Christ, we are connected to one another. Think of, think of a, a tire or a wheel with spokes and a hub. And Jesus is the hub. And when we get connected to Jesus, guess what? We're part of that wheel. We're connected to all the other spokes on the hub. In his little book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that we can only have Christian community in Christ. And what Jesus does is that he always connects us. He always stands between us. So I can't come to you as a brother or sister in Christ without Jesus standing there connecting us. Without Jesus, we can't be the church. And because he has connected us, we will, get this, we will be family for eternity. And some of you are going like, amen. And some of you are saying, oh, my word. <laughs> right? We can't get away from each other. We're going to be together forever. Brothers and sisters, pay attention to this. And I say that intentionally. Brothers and sisters, pay attention to this. This is who we are. This is our identity. The church is made up of people who have nothing in common except one thing, Jesus. And he is enough. There are no cliques in God's presence. There's no divisions in God's presence. There are no ghettos or fences or border walls. No more insiders or outsiders. In Christ, we are inextricably connected with one another. And in the family of God, there is no getting away from one another unless we also get away from Jesus. Now notice the emphasis on peace in these few verses. Verse 14, he, it says, He himself, Jesus, is our peace. Verse 15, it says that he makes peace. In verse 17, it says he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. Christ brings peace where there once was only war. Where there once was only enmity, he brings peace. Without him, we could not live at peace with one another. It would simply be impossible. And being in him without being at peace with our brothers and sisters, therefore, is antithetical to the gospel. It's not only harmful, it's harmful to be in conflict with each other, to, to be at war with each other. But it's also, according to this, it's actually heretical. It's not the way that Jesus would have it. It's not living out the gospel. And this is where I'm trying to get us today to this final piece here, that in Christ, we are part of God's family. Because his intention from the very beginning has been to create for himself a family. So listen to verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to who? To the Father. Right? It doesn't just say God. It doesn't just say the Almighty. It doesn't say the Creator. He says we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And the New Testament calls this the miracle, really, of adoption. Paul spoke of it in Ephesians chapter 1 when he says, In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons, and that word can be taken to mean sons and daughters, adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And then in Galatians, he says this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. 
to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, again, as sons and daughters. Because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. You're a child. And if a son or a daughter, then you are an heir through God. You see, when God chose to reveal himself most intimately to us, he did so as a father by sending his son to us. It wasn't like a boss sending his employee or a master sending his servant. It was a father sending his son. And when you place your faith in Jesus, the son of God, you become God's son or daughter. And God's spirit takes residence in you. And we can now come to God as our father. It's miraculous. And when we come to Jesus, we should be surprised to find that we have. We look around us and all of a sudden, whoa, I've got a bunch of brothers and sisters. I'm part of this multi-ethnic family made up of people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and we all have the same dad. It's beautiful. We are family. Sons and daughters display a, a family resemblance. And as, as new creations, we're told that we're to look and act like our father. Now, none of us in this life are going to do that perfectly, right? We're all going to be growing in it. So toddlers may look like their mom and dad. Like you see the image, you see the resemblance. But they probably don't quite act like their mom and dad yet. Right? They pick up their behaviors over time. They, they pick up those nuances of, of, of certain certain behaviors and ideas and values with the appropriate training. And, and, and God is teaching us as we become his children. He's wanting us to grow more and more to be like him, to be like his son, Jesus. So what does it look like to be his sons and daughters? And I'm just going to give you a couple, three things here before we come to the table. And the first is this. The first is this idea that I choose us. And I love what Rob said this morning. First of all, he thinks you're beautiful. This is my beautiful family. He said, he didn't even know what I was preaching on. This is my beautiful family. He said, I've chosen to be part of this group. I've, been, I've chosen to be part of this family. And we in our culture have nearly infinite amount of choices when it comes to just about anything in our lives. Right? Sandwiches, um, you know, places to fill up your gas tank. Uh, TV stations, TV shows, streaming, whatever it is, we have an infinite amount of choices, including church. When you, if you were born in the 1500s in Europe, you didn't get a choice. You were baptized into one church, and that was your church, because that's all there was. But when we see that the church is a family bought and created by Christ's blood, it should remind us that we don't get to pick our family. You don't pick the family you were born into. We're born into it, and as much as we'd love to surround ourselves with people who are exactly like us or who we just get along with, that's not the church that Jesus envisioned when he died for her. Because of Jesus, we are family. We're sons and daughters. We're brothers and sisters. He died to purchase this family. It seems like it's pretty important to him. So choose the church. Commit to the church. Be a part of the church. It's not optional. And it doesn't have to be this particular local church, but it should be some particular local church. 
We love our Father when we choose to love His children, when we choose to love our brothers and sisters by actively engaging in life with them. So the call here is just show up. Show up and be part of the church because the church needs you. We need you. And you need us. So let's choose us. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, you can flip to the next page and it's sitting right there. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Right? We're taking on the family image. We're looking more and more like Jesus, like our older brother and like our father. As beloved children, be imitators of God. And then here's, here's the directions it gives on how to do that. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So because we're his children, we we carry this family resemblance. We look more and more like him by imitating, by doing the things that he does. And he walks in love. The more that we love each other, the more that we will look like Jesus. You want to look like Jesus? Love each other. How are we to love one another? Well, how did Christ love us? Sacrificially. He laid down his life. He spilled his blood. He died to himself. And that's what God calls us to do with each other. And the point here is that love is difficult. Just like being in a family is difficult. Love is difficult. But when we love one another by doing difficult things, we bear one another's burdens. We carry each other's pains and suffering and sorrow. We pray for one another. We're patient when somebody hurts our feelings or steps on our toes or whatever. We forgive freely one another. And even sometimes we carry someone else's suffering for them. We're called to love one another. And then finally, peace in God's household is crucial. Because Jesus is our peace, right? He makes peace. He, he makes peace with, between us and God and then between us and each other. And as his family, he calls us to live in peace. Not to break peace and be okay with it. Like I just punched David in the nose and we're going to be okay with that. I'm not even going to say I'm sorry. Sometimes we do that. We, we do something to offend somebody and we just don't deal with it. Or we fake peace and somebody sinned against us and we just kind of brush it under the rug and we ignore it. But to truly live in a state of peace with one another is to live like Jesus said to live. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called, what? Sons and daughters of God. That's what sons and daughters do. They look like their dad. And our dad is a peacemaker. And so we are to be peacemakers. To be peacemakers is to carry the family resemblance. But sometimes what we do is we give up on the church because peace was broken. There's been a conflict. Someone's hurt my feelings. I really don't like that person that sits over there on the other side of the church. So I'm going to sit over here. Maybe I won't even come anymore. So we, we leave. We abandon the church because peace has been broken. But what Jesus is saying here is like, don't give up on the church. If there's not peace, that's the time when peacemakers lean in. That's the, that's the time when sons and daughters lean in and make peace. Because this is the blood-bought family of God. And heaven forbid that we would give up on her. Instead of leaving when peace is broken, we're called to press in, to pursue peace, no matter how difficult it is. 
And as we come to the table this morning, that's kind of leave us with that final cause, that there may be someone in your life that you're not at peace with. For some reason, there's been an offense, and maybe you don't even know what it is, or you've done something, and you know exactly what it is, but you know that a relationship isn't right this morning. And we're called, when we come to the Lord's table, when we come to communion, and notice that word, communion, same word we get community from, communion with God, but we're also with each other. If there's someone you know that you need to make peace with this morning, I'm going to ask you to do that before or instead of taking the Lord's Supper today. Make things right where there is not peace. Maybe that means sidling up to somebody or grabbing them and going to the prayer room or going out and getting on the phone or making sure you are contacting them this afternoon. But brothers and sisters, we're family. We're brothers and sisters. And so let's live in peace. Because as we come to this table, we rehearse the gospel. We remind ourselves through a piece of bread and a, and a glass of, of the fruit of the vine, we remind ourselves of the death of Jesus on our behalf. We remind ourselves of his broken body, of his spilt blood that purchased forgiveness so that those who were far, that's us, yes, could be brought near to the Father and to one another. This morning, we're going to take communion together. So... After I pray, Melissa's going to come up, I believe. Joe's going to come up and play quietly for us. And I'm going to invite you at that time to come up and grab the elements, the bread and the cup, and just go back to your seat and hold on to them. Maybe spend that time praying, considering letting God examine your heart. And then when we've all gathered, uh, I will come back up and lead us through that. But now let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your son Jesus, who is our peace, who has made peace, who has come and preached peace to us who are far off and peace to those who are near. And Lord, we want to be people of peace and be peacemakers because we are sons and daughters of the King. God, we thank you for your grace, your mercy that has brought us into your family, that has paid for our sins, that has pursued us even when we were dead in our trespasses. You have not only saved us as individuals, but you have saved us as a body, and we are grateful for that, Lord. Thank you for your church. Thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, I pray that as we go today that you would transform us more into your image as we imitate you, our Father, but also help us to be peacemakers. Lord, help us to, to overlook small offenses. Help us to forgive quickly. Help us to make things right when they need to be right so that we can live in peace and be the family that you died for. Jesus, we're so grateful that the identity you have given us is one that is found only in you. We praise you that we can be in you today, close to the Father and close to one another. We pray this in your name, amen.